And y'all look at with me at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, um, a few weeks ago, school started up again. And I know that looking back on my time in the education system, I was blessed with some fantastic teachers. Grew up in a little town, so nothing fancy, but good teachers, good schools. Had great educational opportunities all my life. I'm very blessed by that. But looking back, the worst thing about school, in my opinion, the, the hardest thing, the thing I hated the most, was when teachers would go over and above and assign some big project, right, like science fair. Somewhere, somewhere back in education school, there's some textbook, maybe taught by, maybe written by Heinrich Himmler, probably, uh, that, that says that students don't really learn from reading books and, and listening to their teacher and going on field trips. They actually need to do some huge project. That's where they learn. And let me just testify, teachers, as a former student myself and as the parent of two students, I didn't learn anything from the science fair, okay? Now, I'm sorry if if you're a science teacher and this is your thing. I'm not trying to offend you, but I actually learned one thing from the science fair, and that is what sheer terror feels like. Because, you know, waking up that morning, science fair morning, was like, oh, no, you know, Jesus didn't come back yet, and I am still alive. And, and you stand down there at the highway, and you wait for the bus, and you're literally praying, hey, Lord, today would be a good day for the bus to run over me. Today would be perfect, because otherwise, there's all kinds of shame and indignation that are coming my way, and it's all well-deserved. And you get there, and, and it doesn't get any better. And, and the worst part of all is there's one kid in the school who actually loves the science fair. You know why? Because his parents did his project for them. And so here's little Timmy who can't even zip up his own pants and can't tie his own shoes, but he has somehow managed to fashion a working nuclear reactor in miniature form. And he's got, you know, these charts and graphs that look like they're made by a Fortune 500 marketing company and a PowerPoint presentation narrated by Morgan Freeman. And you've got, you've got some, uh, you know, some, some clay pots full of dirt with some earthworms in them. And, and some notes written on the back of a, a pizza box. And the worst part about it is after it's all over, when Timmy, of course, has won, and everyone knows that his, his engineer dad and his marketing director mom put the project together for him, but little third-grade Timmy runs around lording it over all creation that he has won, even though he didn't do the work himself. Now, that's a purely hypothetical situation. It never actually happened to me, but... The reason I pointed out is we've been talking about hope. We've been talking about what we have to look forward to as believers. You know, Robert just sang one of the, probably the most beloved song about heaven written in the last 20 years, at least. And we think about that. And, and if you're a Christian, hopefully you feel the assurance of that and you know you have something to look forward to. But the worst thing that can happen to us as believers in regards to our hope, even worse than forgetting our hope, is becoming triumphalistic and walking around like little Timmy, lording it over all creation that look where I'm headed and and you're not, and becoming hateful and self-righteous and arrogant. And that happens. It happens a lot. It's happened down through history. It it happens even today. You go and you ask your average non-Christian, what do you think about when you hear about Christian people? What do you first picture? They say, I'm hateful, self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant. And the truth is, like little Timmy, we didn't do anything. We've got heaven as our reward, and it's not even the reward we earned. We are are gleaning the glory of someone else's work, and that someone is Jesus Christ. 
So what does it mean for us to have hope? If we have this hope, this assurance, we know absolutely positively for certain that we're headed for glory. How should that impact the way we live? All through chapter 15, all 57 verses we've read, it's been about convincing us, persuading us that we have this hope laid up for us. But now here in this last verse, he's going to tell us what that should mean about how we live. So let's look, look with me at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, the first word of the sentence of the verse is therefore. If you know scripture, if you've taken any Bible studies, you've probably heard preachers say this before. Whenever you see the word therefore, it always should make you look back at what came before it. He's referring back to what he just said. So if you haven't been with us these past few weeks, or even if you have, what is Paul saying in all of chapter 15? What has he just told us? He's told us, number one, that God loves us enough that he came down to earth in the form of Jesus and died for our sins. He's, he, he told us also that Jesus on the third day rose again. And he's, he's showed us how this is a historically verifiable, verifiable event, that we can be as certain of the resurrection of Jesus as we can be of any other historical event that occurred. And he says, then he says, what that means for us is not just that Jesus was more powerful than the grave, and not just that we have eternal life, but that we have our own resurrection coming because that resurrection was a first fruits. God said, look what I'm doing in Jesus. Now there's a lot more where that came from. And that's us, that someday we too will rise. When Jesus returns, on the day he returns, we get our new bodies. And he's talked about how those bodies are, are imperishable, they are glorious, they are spiritual, they are perfect. We will walk in glorious, perfect bodies on a new earth forever. We're not drifting around in the ether. We're not flying on angels' wings, playing harps. We are walking and talking and singing and shouting and jumping and playing ball and, and working and standing in the presence of God in bodies that will never wear out, that are everything these bodies can't be. And that's what we have to look forward to. And he says, so therefore, stand firm. That's his first instruction. Stand firm and don't lose this hope. Don't let anything move you. What he's saying is, don't let the world discourage you. You're going to see all kinds of signs that, sh that say the world is headed downward you're going to see all kinds of signs that your body is deteriorating. You're going to see all kinds of signs that your relationships are breaking up because of various trials of life. But don't give up. Stand firm. Hold on to this hope. Paul would later say in the book of Colossians, set your mind on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a daydreamer. That's just my nature. And so if I was sitting where you're sitting, I might already be somewhere else mentally. I know that's not happening for any of you. You all have laser focus. But, you know, I'd be thinking about what we're having for lunch or, or the football game that's going to come on later or vacation that's coming up later on. And we all daydream. And daydream, can we agree, is usually unproductive. It's usually, it, it keeps us from what we need to be doing. There's one exception. Paul says, set your minds on things above, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. When we daydream about heaven, when we daydream about the new earth, when we daydream about our new bodies, about eternity, about standing in the presence of God, uh, will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? When we sit there and, and try to imagine that, 
it's one of the most productive things we can ever do with our brains because it reminds us of what reality is. This world is not reality. It's fleeting. It's passing away. Reality is yet to come. It reminds us of what lasts forever, and it sets our minds on the things that last and that matter most. Okay? So then he says, after he says stand firm, then he says something rather surprising. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, that is the opposite of what you might expect someone to say. If you first find out that you're going to a a wonderful place and you're going to be there forever and you don't have to do anything to get there, Jesus has already done the work, all you have to do is trust in him, you would expect someone to say, therefore, as a result, you don't have to worry about a thing. So sit back and relax, just glide through life, wait for Jesus to come back, you don't have any responsibilities, no problem. But instead, Paul turns around and says, okay, Jesus has done the work, you're, you're going to heaven, it's all, your ticket's already paid, uh, you've got it, it's in your future, so you better work even harder. Now why? How does that make sense? It only makes sense if you think about it this, this way. One of the problems with being human is that we have this fallacy that life is short. You ever heard that? Life is short. Better live it up now. Life is short. Suck the marrow out of life now. Life is short. Make the world your oyster. We believe life is short, and so we get this sense of urgency. I need to get what I want out of life now before it's too late. And so just as an example, I had friends in another church, really, really good people, and they had reached retirement age, and they both retired from their jobs, and they had done really well financially, had invested well, had been frugal, and so they bought this big RV, and I mean, this, this was, you know, this was a mansion on wheels. This is nicer than any house I will ever live in, and they told me, they said, you know, we feel like we may have about 10 more years that we'll be able to travel and get around on our own before our kids put us in a nursing home. And so we're just going to travel. We're going to go do everything we've always wanted to do. And they would come to me and they'd say, okay, we're going to be out for the next three months, literally. Yeah, we're going to be gone for three months. And they would drive to South Carolina and, you know, he would go play golf and she would go antiquing and they'd get together and eat at restaurants and they'd go, go see the sights in that beautiful part of the world. And, and then they'd spend the night in that RV and then they'd come home and they'd be home with us for about four or five weeks. And then, oh, okay, well, now we're, we're going to Washington. We've never seen the Northwest before. And they'd go out there and they'd be gone for another couple months. And I was very conflicted about this because I love these people. They were good friends and they had really earned the right to travel. You know, and I was happy that they were enjoying their retirement. At the same time, we really could have used them at our church. I mean, they had always been key members of that church, and then I get there, and they retire and go on the road. And I'm like, okay, we're trying to start this new Bible study class. Well, who'd be a good teacher? Well, they would. Well, I'm sorry. They're just out too much. Well, here, we're, we're doing this new ministry. Who, who should lead it? Well, they should. No, no, they're going to, they're going to Montana next month. And, and please don't get me wrong. I'm not against vacations. I plan to take them myself. I'm not against retirement. I hope someday that God will allow me to retire and I can be that, that goofy old preacher that shows up whenever your preacher goes on vacation and, and preaches on Sunday mornings. I'm not even against RVs. Probably never will own one, but I think they're pretty cool. My point is, looking back on it, I wish I had said to them, you know what? There's going to be a new earth. And you'll have all of eternity to travel that new earth and unlimited resources to do it. 
what you won't be able to do in the new earth is disciple immature believers and lead people to salvation and reach out to folks who are hungry or hurting. You know why? Because in the new earth, there won't be any immature people. There won't be any lost people. There won't be any hungry people or hurting people. So what I'm saying is life really isn't short when it comes to enjoying oneself when it comes to experiencing the glories of God's creation, life is eternal. Life is only short when it comes to making a difference in the lives of those who are hurting and lost and destined for eternity without God. That's the only way life is short. So if there's a sense of urgency, it needs to be in that. And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not retirement age. That doesn't apply to me. Maybe you're a teenager who says, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm I'm trying to do the right thing. And all my friends, they don't care about doing the right thing. They don't care about following the rules. And they seem to be having a whole lot more fun than I am. I mean, he's getting a lot more girls than I am. And and I'm here, I'm trying to do the right thing. Maybe maybe he's got the right idea. I mean, after all, sooner or later, I'm going to be old, you know, like 26 or something. And and at that point, I won't be able to have fun. So maybe I should... Maybe I should have fun now. Or maybe you're the the guy who's about my age and you say, youth is is slipping away. I can still see it, but it's it's vanishing day by day with every gray hair I see or every hair that falls out. I I just I, I, I see this future and it's right ahead when I'm just this withered old man that can't do anything and I just need to chase after my youth while I have a chance. Or maybe you're the person who's really getting started in your career and you say, you know, I, I know that I've got this family that I need to pay attention to and, and God's put people into my lives that I need to invest in and I, I need to be involved in church and I need to, I, I need to you know, invest my life in my community. But, but right now, I, I've got this short window of opportunity to make something of myself and to be successful and achieve my dreams. And so now, for this next season of my life, it's going to be about me. It's just going to be about me accomplishing what I want. And later on, it'll be about others. Just understand Life isn't short. It isn't as short as you think it is. It's eternal, except when it comes to making an impact. What Paul is saying is, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Do you need a break every once in a while? Absolutely. Do you need some recreation? Hey, Jesus went up on the mountainside. Jesus went to wedding feasts. Nothing wrong with that, but always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. That should be your sense of urgency. And you might say, well, I don't know what my work in the Lord is. Paul's work in the Lord was obvious. He was a church planter. He was an apostle. I'm a pastor. I know what my calling is. You may sit there and say, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what God put me here to do. I just honestly thought I was just supposed to earn a living and maybe drop a little money in the plate and, and pray, and then you ministers go do the work of the Lord. That's not at all what the Bible says. Our job as ministers is to equip you to do the work. You might say, well, that's news to me. What's my calling? I have no idea. And if you're one of those people, and I'm sure there are plenty of you who say, I've never really identified what my work is in Christ. Here's my advice to you. And this could be a whole sermon series, okay? But in brief, let me just say, say that to God. Just say, Lord, I know that you put me here for a reason, and it's not just to earn a living and wait for retirement and then die. So, Lord, show me what it is. Show me what I'm here to do. And in the meantime, as you're praying that prayer every day, make yourself available 
And whenever you hear of an opportunity, they're, they're looking for volunteers in this section of our church, throw up your hand. You hear of an opportunity out there in the world, you see a need, and, and they need people to, to do this, to meet this need, to, to help this organization, jump in. And you keep volunteering, two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to find some things you're really not very good at, and that's okay. But you're going to find some things you love. And then you're going to find something that you're really, really good at. So good at it that others look at you and say, wow, you're really meant to do this. And you can see you're helping others and you get something out of it. It, it, it brings you joy. And, and in fact, it becomes such a love of yours that you would do it for free. In fact, you do do it for free. In fact, you would do it even if it became illegal. And then you found your calling. So pray and serve, and God will show you what your work in the Lord is. Now, many of you here would say, I think I know what my calling is. Some of you are fortunate enough to say, I think my career is my calling. I think God has placed me in a career field where I can use my gifts, where I can serve him, because let's say, for instance, you say, I'm a teacher, and I can, I can help shape the next generation alongside their parents, alongside the rest of my school. We're raising up the next generation to go out into the community and make a difference. Or you say, well, I'm, I'm an architect and I've got this creative ability. I just believe that my calling is to make things of beauty, to point to the one who created beauty itself. Or you say, I, I'm a person who knows how to make money and I, I do that in a way, in such a way that I, I handle money with integrity and then at the end I'm able to give more than most people to mission causes. Or you say, I, I run a business and I do it with, with great integrity. I'm compassionate to my clients and I'm, I'm firm with my employees but in a way that teaches them life skills and helps them further in life. You, you might be one of those people who is fortunate enough to say, I know how to serve God through my career. Now, there are others of you, I bet, if you stood up and I asked you, you would say, honestly, I'm glad I have a job, but I don't really enjoy work. It's just something that pays the bills. Many of the people I grew up with are that way. Many of you are that way. I, I just do this because I need to pay the bills. My calling is something else. What I'm really called to, what I really love, the way I serve the Lord is I, uh, I mentor teenagers who come from rough families and don't really have any support at home. I, I try to fill the gap and, and help guide them towards uh, good life choices. Or I raise foster kids and help them get on the right road and, and towards a better life than they otherwise would have. Or I help unwed mothers choose life for their unborn babies. Or I, I help poor people who don't speak English by teaching them English so they can become citizens, so they can become more, uh, more well-developed people in the world and have better opportunities. You've got all these callings and a room this size. I raise my kids and try to make my home a beacon to the rest of the neighborhood, or I, I reach out to my elderly next-door neighbor. He's my calling right now. There's any number of people, any number of possible callings in this room. And what Paul is saying here is, don't give up because he knows how discouraging this can be. He says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why does he say that? He wants you to know that right now, no matter how good your intentions are, and no matter how gifted you are, there's going to be times of discouragement. There's going to be times where you're giving your all, and you step back and say, I don't think I'm making a difference. Not one bit. You're leading a life group, and you get done. I mean, every week you are preparing, you're preparing even more than I do, and you get done on Sunday morning and you walk away and think, I don't think they even understood what I was saying. You're, you're teaching little kids in, on, in Building 8, 
and you walk away one Sunday and you say, I think I was just a babysitter. I, I didn't teach anybody the scriptures. Or you're working with our youth and you walk away and say, I don't think I'm connecting with them. I think maybe I'm too old. I don't really reach them anymore. Uh, you could get discouraged no matter what you do. Pastors get discouraged. And Paul says, just wait. You're going to find out that all your labor was not in vain, that all your labor made an eternal difference. Just don't give up. Later on in Galatians, he would say, if we just don't quit, we'll reap a harvest. If we just don't give up, just keep plowing that field, we're going to reap a great harvest someday. J.R.R. Tolkien was the uh, author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Many of you are familiar with this, even if you didn't actually read it. Tolkien was trying to wrap up. I mean, he worked on this series for years. And he was, he was stuck at a certain point. Uh, he had gotten to a point where he didn't really know where to go with the different threads of his story. And if, you, if you're familiar at all with the story, you know there are dozens of different characters with odd names from non-human species. They speak languages that didn't actually exist until Tolkien himself invented them. There's all these complicated backstories. And Tolkien just got to a point where he was stuck. And right then, World War II had just broken out. Tolkien had fought in World War I, and like most of that generation, he thought that was the war to end all wars. Now he comes to find out it, it just gave birth to a, an even greater calamity on humanity. And so he was discouraged. And right in the midst of that, a literary magazine wrote to him and said, Mr. Tolkien, would you consider writing a story for publication for our magazine? He said, sure. So he wrote a story, and, and the title of the story is Leaf by Niggle. I know an unusual term, usual title, but uh, the story is about this artist whose name is Niggle. And Niggle lives in a world where art isn't really appreciated, but he has this passionate vision. He makes other works for money, but, but he's got this vision of a painting of this vast forest with this one beautiful tree right in the middle of the forest, and he could see it so clearly, and it just makes him weep. He's so excited about it. He goes out, and he buys the biggest canvas he can find. It's so large, he has to actually get on a ladder to paint on it, and he starts his work. But there are a couple of things that have Niggle discouraged. One is that he's got a journey coming up that he doesn't really want to take. And Tolkien never says so in the story, but it's obvious that the journey it's talking about is his own death. His own death is approaching quickly. And the other thing that discourages him is he's not making progress on his painting. And part of that is because he's, he's a perfectionist like most artists, and he's, he finds himself just fascinated with one leaf on the tree, and he's, he just keeps going over it and over it, reshading it and, and working on the, the intricate little veins in the leaf. And the other is his, his friends, his neighbors keep knocking on the door and saying, hey, I need your help with this. Can I borrow a tool? Can you, can you help me out? One night as he's working, a man knocks on his door and he says, listen, my wife is lost. I don't know where she is and there's a storm coming. Can you help me find her? And so Niggle and this man go out and they find this man's wife and they're in the midst of a storm and he, gets his, he catches a chill. And when he gets back home, the driver's waiting for him. His journey has begun. And he weeps because he looks at that canvas and he knows he hasn't even come close to finishing. But he doesn't have a choice. He gets in the wagon and he goes away. The man who buys the home after Niggle is long gone finds that canvas and, and all that's there is that one leaf. And so he cuts it out and he donates it to the town museum and they entitle it Leaf by Niggle and they come and admire it every once in a while. And that's it. That's his life's work. And if, if Tolkien was just an ordinary writer, that would be the end of the story and it would be a story about unfulfilled expectation and, and the frustrations of being an artist. 
But Tolkien was a Christian, fortunately. And so the story ends a very different way. You see, Niggle goes on this journey, and he, it ends in this very mysterious forest, and the driver drops him off and, and rides away, and Niggle's looking around. There's all these trees around him, and he doesn't know where he is at first, and then the light dawns, and he recognizes it. It's the forest from his vision. It's the forest he's seen in his mind all his life. And as he walks through, he suddenly comes upon it. He comes upon the tree that he was trying to paint. And I'll read the words of Tolkien himself in the way the story ends. It says, before him stood the tree, his tree finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. And that's the end of the story. And I think what Tolkien was trying to say is that we may feel like we're not getting anywhere. When we're trying to do what God has placed us on this earth to do, the gifts that he's given us, we're trying to make a contribution, and we feel like we're losing. And someday we're going to get there and find out we made far more of a difference than we thought. That, that we're making an impact in this short little window we have that's going to change eternity for numerous people in ways we can't possibly anticipate. And so I think that means that if, if you're a teacher and, and you say to yourself, you know, I got into this business because I love kids and, and I love learning, but honestly, most of the kids I teach, they don't even pay attention to me. Every once in a while, I see a light go on in somebody's eyes, but for the most part, they're just kind of putting up with me. And, and meanwhile, I spend most of my time worrying about the state-mandated test that's coming up in the spring and dealing with parents who don't have uh, reasonable expectations. Or, and if, if that's you... What, what Tolkien, I think, is saying is you're going to get there someday and you're going to find out that you're in a place of limitless knowledge and all the time in the world to learn it. And you're going to come across students that you knew on earth. And you're going to find out they're there partly because of you, that you had an impact on them you never even saw. If you're an architect and you got into that business because you're creative and you have these visions of all these beautiful things you could create, and now years later you find yourself pumping out cookie-cutter designs because that's what the client wants, someday you're going to be in a place of unimaginable beauty designed by the master architect himself. And who knows, maybe you'll walk through cities and look up and say, hey, there's the building I thought of. There's the building I drew but never got to build. Maybe God will say, hey, I want you to design this city for me over here. And if you work with unwed mothers, you're going to be in a world where there are no unwanted children. If you work with people who are addicted to foreign substances, you're going to be in a place where everyone's body is whole. If you work feeding the hungry, you're going to be in a place of boundless, endless feast. If you get discouraged, know that you're headed for a place of joy absolute joy, such joy that the greatest time you've ever had on this earth will seem like something that happened when you were three. That will seem silly in comparison. Our time on this earth is short. Our opportunity to make a difference is short. Our opportunity to enjoy ourselves is eternal. What it comes down to is this. When we get there, we'll find out there's a tree in that place that is a fulfillment of all you've ever dreamed of in this life, all you've worked towards, all you've ever hoped for. And we know that for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus in this world died on a tree. And so the tree of life is ours.